I'm Rebecca Murphy, and this is Engineering Unblocked. Today, I'm talking with Alex Pluger. He's the co-founder and CTO at Gorgeous, a platform that helps e-commerce businesses provide top-tier customer support experiences. We're going to chat about the challenges of building a business in an unfamiliar realm, learning from low-risk experiments, and how headcount isn't necessarily an indicator of success. Alex, how's it going? Good. How are you? Excellent. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining me today. Um, I I introduced you just a moment ago, very briefly, but can you tell me a little bit about who you are and what we're going to talk about today? Of course. Um, So first of all, thanks for for, for the invite. I do appreciate it. Just like really quickly about me and what am I doing? Um, I'm Alex Pugaro. I'm one of the co-founders and CTO of Gorgeous. Gorgeous is helping merchants deliver exceptional customer experience. So we are operating in the e-commerce space and we're making a help desk for e-commerce. Most of our customers are in uh, Shopify, Magento, WooCommerce, and so on. So, so uh, yeah, we're making a, a support tool, so to speak. Uh, but I'll, I'll tell you more <laughs> like about our offering a bit later, for sure. Thank you for that. I know uh, since this is a podcast that is supported by Swarmia, I know we also want to just point out that you're an investor in Swarmia, but you're also a customer and that's that's why you're here today. Yeah, I think it's super important to disclose these things. I was a customer before. I think I was a customer for two years before investing a, a pretty small check. The reason I, I did is because... I truly believe in the company and I think in the direction and the approach that the company is taking towards engineering productivity, which is a subject which I really care about. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Uh, I really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm glad to hear all of that. We're actually going to talk about basically none of that today. Really want to dig in today to, to kind of your experience as an engineering leader and coming up with Gorgeous, starting as a co-founder and being the CTO today. So you want to tell me just a little bit about what was the state of the world when you, you didn't show up, you founded this. Yeah. So what was the state of the world when you got started on this? Yeah. So about 10 years ago, uh, I was working for a startup here in Paris. And we had a kind of a mix of uh, uh, B2C kind of customers, so consumers and, 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 and companies. I think half and half was the distribution at the time. There was it's, It was a pretty small company. And uh, we only had one support uh, person. Uh, and I was an engineer in the, in the, in the company. And so we were looking for a tool at the time and I was like, we couldn't really find anything that suited our needs. And I was like, you know what, like I'm just, we were using Gmail and I was, I was just, just going to write a Chrome extension to write faster, to respond faster. And so, yeah, I was working uh, pretty much like weekends and to build this tool and I published it on the, the Chrome web store and I got quite a bit of, uh, of usage, like with not much marketing, it's kind of like through friends and all of that. So it, it started growing. It, well, until eventually I realized that this might be a thing. It's like people are actually uh, care about it. And so this is how the, the story started. And then soon after, I, I, I met with my co-founder, uh, uh, Roman, uh, and uh, he's the CEO of the company. And we, we decided to, to become a bit more ambitious and really create like a fully integrated tool, not just like an extension. Uh, but really, it started like with an extension. We understood the market a little bit better because none of us were like experts in customer service or like sales or anything. So it was a really good method to to learn the market and talk with people, and uh, and so that that helped us a lot. So this is how it started. Of course, like right now, it's uh, it's been uh, quite a bit of time. 
I know there was a, there was a period where a lot of businesses were getting started around Chrome extensions. <laughs> um, I, don't, I wonder yeah. how much that's that's happening today. So there are still pretty big ones, Grammarly. But the the, yeah. the problem, I think, it's uh, yeah, you can make a business. Absolutely, you can. It's just as very rare, I would say, uh, to make a SaaS business. Uh, it has been rare. I feel like. This is partially because of how Google looks at uh, their browser and partially how uh, people also approach. Like, it's really strange to look at a Chrome extension and pay for it. Like, uh, our highest plan on the advanced uh, uh, plan is $750 per month. (laughs) Nobody's going to pay that for a Chrome extension. It's it's like, who's paying for a Chrome extension that costs that much, right? So so it's uh, it's very different, I would say. And there's some perception uh, around it. But I would say it's like... Definitely can build a business, but it's going to there's very few examples in the Chrome Web Store, which are, yeah, really big ones. As a discovery uh, mechanism, as you're exploring a product, I think it's a, a really neat... Absolutely. It's a very low friction. There's millions of people on the on the, on the platform. Web store. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and you don't need a lot of servers because like the code runs on the on the on the client. And yeah, exactly. So yeah, I highly recommend starting something like this. If you're thinking of testing an idea and kind of putting it out there, might might be a good platform to check it out. Of course, not all businesses can can do that, but yeah, not all all solutions. Yeah, it makes me wonder if like Postman had the same kind of journey of like making something that worked and they became a standalone app eventually, right? So yeah, realized they they could make some make some money off of it. So tell me about Gorgeous today. Today, um, how many engineer? How big is the company as a whole? How many engineers do you have? And kind of how are you structured engineering-wise? Absolutely. So we, in thought, we are, we are globally distributed. Typically, we have this kind of weird hybrid system where we have a bunch of different hubs. Mm-hmm. The headquarters is in Francisco. We have a hub in Paris, where I'm at right now. We have a New York office, and we have Toronto one. So basically, like we're a little bit distributed and mostly around where the customers are. Most of the engineering is located in Europe. And... In total, we're about 260 or so people right now. And from that, uh, about 96 in uh, product engineering and design, of which 78 is engineering, uh, including engineering managers, myself, like basically everyone who has an engineering function. I am uh, responsible for the engineering team. So I'm the CTO and, uh, and uh, basically it's like all the engineers who are working on the product as part of the product organization uh, are reporting to me. You mentioned like 70 or 80 engineers today. Um, how has that changed over the years? That's actually, that strikes me as a kind of small number for a company that has been around successful. So yeah, what's your secret? But also, how has that number changed? I don't really... Um, subscribe to the the success based on the headcount. I feel like that is not necessarily something that is very like representative because you can make uh, quite a successful product with very little people. There's a lot of uh, examples in the in the industry where that is, that is the case. I believe like WhatsApp has had like 20 people like Reddit. So you can definitely do it with, with less. Um, and I would actually encourage people to think twice, you know, like, can you do it with less people? Because that adds a huge amount of overhead. Things uh, not necessarily move slower, but like adds a lot of overhead. And uh, and so like uh, yeah, if you can do it with a smaller team, absolutely, a hundred percent of the time you should. The way uh, uh, our organization evolved for a pretty long time were um, a team of five people. I think the first two years since like we uh, started actually working on on the company and raised some funds and so forth. 
we were pretty much like preserving cash and trying to get product market fit. Just for context, our uh, market is, uh, there's two aspects. Uh, first of all, in the e-commerce and specifically support, uh, the, the budgets are not as big as the marketing or other departments. So typically support is uh, one of the kind of the lowest budgets. So like they are, their willingness to pay for an expense product is, is not that high. And so that's number one. Second, there's a lot of competition. Uh, one of the competitors is NDS, one of the biggest ones. Of course, everyone knows Intercom and other. Uh, these are very high quality products and it's very difficult to break into a market. Really. So for us, it took quite a bit of time to find that aha moment for the e-commerce merchants and we selected a specific niche. So we didn't go after like boil the ocean type of approach. We're going to be support for everything. We said, you know what? It seems that a lot of e-commerce merchants really need a tailored solution. And also the total addressable market is quite big. Just for reference, Shopify has about 3 million merchants today. So it's a quite good ecosystem to, to be in uh, and, and to grow. And they're still continuing to grow. And in terms of like the headcount evolution, it happened that after basically, I, I would say when COVID hit, we had a pretty big accelerator because everyone would move online and e-commerce had like a pretty big boost. And, right. you know, uh, everyone is aware of that. So that provided quite a bit of basically uh, tail, tailwinds for us that allowed us to scale really quickly. I think at the beginning of COVID, we were like 33 in the company and, you know, we quickly began two years, like we were 200. So we grew really, really quickly during that period and we, we raised a bit of cash and uh, there's there's a learning there as well. Uh, I mean, quite a few. We can, I could share about that. Like the, the, the basically like the, I would say the, the hyper growth stage of our company. Yeah, I think it's, it's interesting because I look at, this is actually my first time working at a startup in about 10, 10 years. And so I've worked at much larger places and I look at 78 and like... That, that doesn't feel like hyper growth to me, but I did. It's really true that going from 30 to 200 is yeah. a whole different company, right? Yeah. And you've got COVID going on around you, which is, you know, just... And we, we also switched. We used to be in a single office and we switched into this like full remote as well. So yeah, right. a lot of challenges. How did you decide that this was actually worth, like what, what, what influenced that decision to do that big jump in growth around COVID time? I mean, obviously COVID influenced it, but how did, how did you talk about that as a company and say like, this is actually the moment when we can use more people and we're confident we can use them correctly? So I would say when work can actually be split, uh, when you can be parallel in some aspects uh, of the company, meaning, for example, uh, the way we organize ourselves is is pretty much like we have this sort of like squad tribe alliance structure. We don't really have alliances; we just have tribes right now. But like basically, it's this the the Spotify uh, model, uh, where at the leadership of each squad there is the trifecta of product design and engineering, uh, and we have engineering managers who are quite technical. They they are expected to also contribute technically from time to time. So I can talk about that as well. But this is how we organize ourselves. And so each squad and, and tribe, they're responsible typically for like a kind of a product function, either a big product function or uh, a, a, like a product offering with a separate pricing, with a separate kind of go-to-market strategy and so. And the collaboration between uh, these different offerings is not that high, meaning that there is a, a, a separation that you can create. So if you have... This type of system, I think it's, it's certainly worth uh, splitting it up. There's other ways to split up. 
But basically, it's like the um, the theory around like how to speed up team and why is around kind of like the, the cognitive load. Mm-hmm. For example, if you take a squad and you say it's like, okay, what is the domain of this squad? Like how many responsibilities do they have? Do they have like 50 different responsibilities? Like how do they need to do their job and so forth? And if it's too much, then usually what happens is like they have the backlog. It just increases and increases and it's crazy and never gets kind of consumed and everyone is frustrated all over the stakeholders and so forth. And usually like every manager sees some fracture lines where they can split up and create this cell division, right? Uh, and usually they, they, they become apparent. But I think it's like, when you think about cognitive load, usually you can split it up into three different uh, uh, sections. One being, okay, like what does a team need in order to do their job? Do they need to know like JavaScript, Python, Java, like five different languages or just one? Like do they have, you know, a huge amount of technologies that they need to, to, to execute with or just a few? This would be, I would say it's like the, the, the absolute must to do the job is like the intrinsic cognitive load. So they need to, you need to know JavaScript, right? For example, or Python or whatever. And then there is the kind of the extraneous stuff, which is like, I need to know VCI. I need to know like how to deploy. I need to know how the product, uh, basically how the QA process functions and so forth. This is something that is extraneous to the, the work, the, the value that is being created. Absolutely important still, but like, do you really need to know how Kubernetes works? Right. Right. It's like, Hopefully not. <laughs> and then there's the, the kind of the business knowledge, like the, the domain knowledge, like do, do I know what the customers want? Like what would the stakeholders expect? Should I notify the support team before releasing these things? Like do I have the awareness of the world? So when, when thinking about like splitting teams and separating work and adding headcount, I think it's important to think in terms of cognitive load and dividing these different cognitive load types and seeing is like, okay, how can I bound the intrinsic one? Meaning is like the team should only know five different technologies like JavaScript and maybe a little bit of this, a little bit of Postgres and so forth. How can I limit or minimize the extraneous one? Like they shouldn't necessarily know. Uh, so you create abstractions and so forth and templates and all of that type of stuff to reduce the extraneous one. And how can I maximize the domain knowledge, the product knowledge, the, the business knowledge, the customer needs? stakeholder needs and so forth, right? So this is usually like how I think uh, there is an excellent book called Team Topologies, mm-hmm. uh, which goes into a bit more details around this. And I think this is kind of the, the method that we're utilizing to, to scale our team. And of course, in, in, in the book, there is discussions about platform teams, uh, complicated subsystem teams and so forth. But this is beyond the, the scope of this podcast, unfortunately, we would, we would need to speak a very long time. So when when you made the decision to start growing, did you know all that? Mm-hmm. Or what, what, what mistakes did you make along the way? What, what, uh, what did you have to fix along the way? Well, just, just to put co- uh, a bit things into context, I'm a first-time founder. I haven't done this in the past. Uh, I've been working in the industry for quite a bit before starting the company, of course, but really this is the biggest company. Also the biggest company I worked uh, for ever. So like most of my career was in very small companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, um, definitely, uh, unknown territory. I think what helped me avoid certain mistakes, not that I didn't do, I did a lot, of course, like every founder, um, even experienced ones, of course, do a lot of things. Sure. Uh, there's basically like three ways I try to kind of gain knowledge and avoid common pitfalls. I try to speak with people in the industry who are close to the level that uh, I am in. in uh, so, for example, like some of our investors are from, from Datadog, really excellent guys. 
but they are public company. So it's like whenever I get to speak five minutes with Olivier, he's like, man, I don't know at your level, but it's just like way too early, you know? It's yeah. like, so I think selecting the peers uh, closer to, or maybe like a level up. So let's say like if you're at seed round, choose, try to reach out to a couple of series A, series B people and try to understand like what they're doing and to avoid that type of stuff. So uh, this, that's one thing. Second, if you are lucky to get an executive coach, uh, get it. If you can, really works. Uh, I think I think it's really great to have this type of support. It's, it's, it's very hard to, you know, day-to-day to really deal with a lot of stuff. And there's a lot of up and ups and downs in, in startups. So if you can, absolutely do it. If you're on a personal level, get therapy. If you can, definitely helps. It's an unnatural, I would say, state to be a founder and like in the history of humanity, there wasn't a lot of like this sort of uh, situations where it grows super fast, right? So it's it's a, it's a bit, uh, we don't really know exactly like what is a good approach. So I think we're still discovering the, the, the dynamics of being a tech founder. So, so there is that. And of course, reading books, uh, blog posts, podcasts, right? Like listening to all of it, getting all of the resources that you can and say, these are, these are the, the ways uh, to do it. In terms of mistakes that I did, I would say the biggest uh, in engineering specifically, I would say the, the thing that affected the most, uh, I would say is the, the fact that we hired uh, engineering managers, which didn't really have a lot of very strong technical skills. Basically, they, they weren't senior uh, engineers in the path. They mm-hmm. moved to management a bit too early, in my opinion. And so they were extremely good at kind of like people skills and managing backlogs and so forth. But the satisfaction from engineers was really, really low. Yeah. It's like, uh, because it's the classic story. My manager doesn't know, doesn't know my job. Like he cannot really understand or empathize with, with my struggles or help me kind of get unblocked. And so I would say my philosophy is that the engineering managers, like no matter which level, uh, need to know how to code and need to be technical. Of course, like I don't expect them to be at like principal level or like whatever. Right? It's just like not not realistic to expect that. But they need to be like pretty good engineers, like yeah, because otherwise it's, it's extremely hard. So tell me about today. Um, today you're on the other side of that growth, or I'm, I'm imagining it has slowed down a little bit post COVID, and you're not in the hyper phase. What's your job look like today? Why are you there? Why do they pay you money? I think it's important, you know, when you're a co-founder and when you're uh, when you're still to separate the roles that you have. I think have a clear understanding about when are you operating as a co-founder or a board member or you know one of the, the board members of the company. And when are you actually fulfilling a job? And I think it's important to separate like when you're a founder and, and, and make sure that you have, I think writing the job description, your own job description is a good exercise to do. Uh, and so when I did that exercise, I was like, okay, there's typically two types of, of CTOs, so to speak, in the industry. There is the, let's say, the architect, the individual contributor, uh, but not really the manager archetype, where uh, this person is pretty much the top uh, individual contributor in the engineering team. And they usually hire a VP of engineering, which is like on kind of basically the people management, work structure, the strategy, the whole business, like all of that. And they usually collaborate very closely together with the CTO. 
Uh, and then there is the CEO, uh, which is uh, just manager, right? So, so I'm I'm the second type. I'm managing other managers, which manage managers, which manage ITs, uh, and so I'm pretty much fulfilling the the management uh, aspect, and I'm uh, contributing as an IC, but extremely uh, low. Uh, and usually, it's like changing a CSS somewhere or fixing a small <laughs> bug somewhere else. Uh, the reason I still do this is because I would like to see how the entire process still works. I feel like there is still a responsibility for me to understand, like from the beginning, how the code gets pushed from idea, from issue into production and what are the different steps and how long does it take. So that's pretty much like the developer experience aspect of it. The reality is I'm not really contributing that much, uh, but I, I do read code. I do. I think even if you don't code a lot, I, I still like if there is like a interesting PR around the technology that I'm curious about, or is it very important for the company? I do get involved and I look at it a bit in more detail what's going on. Oh, I miss reading PRs. I should, you're right. I should do that just, just, just for fun. Yeah. Just, just make sure uh, like when you, when, when we have a lot of people, like if CTO starts uh, commenting on PRs, like, I mean, if you don't have like a very close relationship with IC, it can be triggering for some people. So just like be, be mindful of that. Yeah. yeah. It's so, it's so interesting. I, I was at, um, indeed and got to see indeed grow from like 250 engineers to over a thousand. And mm -hmm. that, that like executive fear was real. Like I met my, my boss who was a VP of engineering and he was just like a guy. But when we had quadrupled in size, people didn't look at him as just a guy. And he was like, Ooh, the scary VP. Tell me, have there been other cases where you've had to realize like my visible presence here is not helpful. <laughs> So if this is hard question to answer for me because like I would, I would say I'm biased maybe here, but I would say at Gorgeous, we have a pretty uh, transparent and direct culture where, uh, and, and I think this is also the case in engineering. I think usually in engineering teams, engineers are by nature a little bit more like either the code works or it doesn't like, <laughs> it, like what is, what is your data dog dashboard? So, right. Like there's, what about fancy errors? What about like, I mean, it's, it's, uh, I, I don't want to say there is no uh, stochasticity here, but there is a lot of kind of more matter of fact type things. And I would say mm. at least with uh, the way I look the way when I do skip levels with like a lot of engineers in the team, like I get pretty, pretty interesting insights uh, about what's working, what's not working. So, but certainly I think it's important to remind people and also share not always the kind of your concerns, uh, but basically share your thinking, share your the context that you're seeing. I think you, you become a lot more approachable when you you share basically like your thought process around like a specific decision and everything, mm -hmm. and people can make their own decisions and be a bit more. And uh, of course, ask for feedback. It's like I, I think this is what we should do. Is there a better way? Uh, mm. And kind of continue that debate. I think the other part is also is like if there's a lot of new people, there can be the impression that you're not approachable. So I would say it's like kind of maintain the contact to continue doing skip levels. Like don't, you know, stay in your ivory tower and just like <laughs> look from time to time somewhere. You need to be present. There's no magic to it, in my opinion. How often are you doing those skip levels and how, how far down uh, layers are you going? Yeah, so thankfully, we, I mean, I still manage to do, uh, to do quite a bit. So I, my, my system is not very sophisticated. I have a spreadsheet and I have the dates and I have kind of like how long was it since I spoke with someone. <laughs> sure. And I have notes, uh, of course, like with everyone I speak with. So before I do a skip 
skip level, uh, I do that. Sometimes I have some specific interest because of the uh, whatever the objective of the company is or the engineering team objective and so forth. So I do more often skip levels with some people. For example, right now we're we're in the process of revamping our analytics stack, and so there's a lot of things around like kind of data pipelines and uh, you know like all up databases and a bunch of different stuff, right? So I, of course I will spend a bit more time there. I will. Maybe, uh, you know, do a couple of one-on-ones with people, maybe even for a longer session, right? And talk about the technology, but also like kind of the challenges that we are facing. So I would say it depends, but typically I try to do them at least once, uh, uh, twice per year, Mm -hmm. um, uh, the very minimum. One of the things that was really interesting when we talked kind of to prep for this episode was you shared a really kind of detailed framework of, of how you think about approaching software companies. I'm just curious if you can talk a little bit about your kind of your takeaways from being a co-founder and what is there to learn from that that isn't um, you know, specific to the e-commerce industry, but is specific to the software industry. So I like to, to illustrate this with a thought experiment. Basically, it's like imagine that you have a company which is like fully automated. The product is fully automated, the sales, the marketing, everything, basically like all of the operations of the company. Uh, completely automated. I call it a 100% software company, but obviously that type of company doesn't exist yet. Although like with auto GPT and a bunch of stuff, like we're getting closer and closer, but that's not truly a reality that we have today. Uh, but I think it's still a good and valuable framework uh, to consider when, when building something. But what is automated this? So it's like you think is like, okay, payments, like we talked about Stripe just now, like payments pretty much like once you implement the product, this is an automated process. If you use a, a payroll software, once you set it up, you know, it's automated and so forth. Like there are examples of uh, different functions in any given company uh, in the world right now, which are already somewhat automated. And so when thinking about starting a company, it's like, okay, what are the different functions and how big are those functions in the company? And which parts of those functions can be automated with mm-hmm. software? Because that's, that's like the nature of this is what software does. Like it, it automates work, right? So that's the purpose. And we, we, we selected kind of support because it's a, it's a big one. All the companies have it. And it's very repetitive, meaning that is ripe for automation, right? So that's the reason we selected this industry. But of course, like... Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's the only one. But obviously, there's like tons and tons of startups that do like marketing automation or like running your, your Facebook ads and stuff like that. So yeah, I would say this this is the kind of the philosophy uh, that we use to, to kind of to narrow down uh, where we are. And what's interesting is that like even when you select, let's say, like a specific area, like a specific cross section of all of this, that cross cross section actually it's like a fractal you know it's like even if you go in one thing you can you can always there's like new software creates the capacity to serve it so for example we are serving the e-commerce industry it's like a cross section of the support industry as a whole like a very small uh, compared to the global one but now we have about 100 integrations which are businesses which like partially run on top of our platform 
basically it's like new software creates new opportunities and there's always space. So if you're thinking there is oversaturated B2B software or there's too many uh, social networks, uh, maybe there are. But I would say there's always some some niche uh, and there's always a door which can open up. You know, it depends on what you want to do. Of course, like if you are uh, uh, content with, you know, like 10K MRR, if that is your goal, Absolutely, you can create that. You can you can be a one uh, one person company, uh, be be very successful, like and, and content with that. If you want to build like a billion dollar business in revenue or something like that, you obviously need to, to cover a little bit more 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 space. Uh, but I, I would say it's like there's definitely more and more uh, capacity being created even today. I'm just curious, does that lead you to kind of seek boring problems or does that like, is there some other pithy takeaway here? That's a great way of saying it. Something that is typically boring is something that's actually everyone needs. Like, uh, do, do you want to see your lawyer every day? It's like, no, but you better have it if you have a problem or a doctor or like something like that, right? So it's like, I, I would say... You know, something that is very valuable uh, for a lot of people. Personally, for me, what motivates me a lot in terms of like kind of building software and products is that this software is used very often. So basically, I want users to be something very important to them. I don't want to build something that is used maybe once uh, every quarter or something like that. Like, that's not something that motivates me. Uh, and so having a tool that is used daily by a lot of people is really motivating. The reason for this is because I get like a kick every time we do a small improvement, people notice, you know, it's like, and they give us positive feedback and that keeps us going. Essentially, like it keeps us motivated all the time to get kind of good, positive feedback. In fact, for me, it's like even the negative one. If I get it, like, I'm just like, yeah, 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 the product is great, but tell me what doesn't work. And then it's like, you start pulling. And that's like, to me, it's very motivating as an engineer. It's like, oh, okay, this, this is the niche case we didn't really think about, but you know, how can we, we, we figure it out and so forth. So I would say if you are thinking about starting a company, at least from a point of view of as, as an engineer, and I, I don't think it necessarily applies just to engineering, choose something that is, is, useful for a lot of people because i think that will keep you motivated uh because you're gonna you're gonna see that you're impacting people's lives and in in a positive way and usually in b2b like there's a lot of competition so there's people like go from company to company they churn and they, they transition somewhere else and so like if people use your product it means you build something pretty good because yeah. there's alternatives, right? So it's like if they didn't feel like your product is good, so you have kind of like you have the money, they are paying you the money, and that's kind of their vote that says your company is doing something valuable. And there's like also the founder market fit. For example, we didn't have a founder market fit. We kind of grew into it by, uh, I mentioned at the beginning of our discussion, the Chrome extension, where we kind of found a very low-cost way of learning. And so this is how we acquired a lot of knowledge about the market uh, with very little uh, funds. And so if you can find a way to learn quite quickly, then you should absolutely take that path uh, if you do not have a ton of industry knowledge like we, we didn't have. Yeah. I think that's neat just first that you have still been successful without the industry knowledge. I also think like my choose boring problems was a little tongue in cheek too, because as you're pointing out, like, these problems aren't but like once you get into them, <laughs> once you get into like, by, by the way, I love, I love customer service. I feel like this is the best approach. Like if I would go in another company, 
Like I would just go and do like a month of customer service as an agent. I would know exactly what's wrong, <laughs> you know, with the product, with the processes, with like, I would know the, the industry, basically talking with customers, understanding this, like, I feel like it's such a, it's such a powerful way. And usually customer service is where there is the almost like 90% of the time is the only moment that a human communicates with another human. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, with automation that is decreasing or like basically the like company scales even more and more. But that connection, that touch is, is pretty valuable. And I think it's, it's completely underrated uh, as a whole. I think we are approaching customer service like in our industry uh, in general. In, in the wrong way. But yeah, that's that's a different discussion, I guess. It is a whole other topic, but I think it's it's um, it's really interesting because I, I agree. I think it's an underutilized resource when you're trying to figure out what the heck you should be doing. And uh, I could talk about that for a long time. But as it stands, we have used up our time. So Alex, thank you so much. This is a treat to chat and we'll hopefully talk again soon. Thanks for inviting me. Appreciate it. And that's the show. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Swarmia for making this podcast possible. We'll see you next time.